0: All right, Gospel of Matthew. This is on. Batteries are in here. We're ready to go. (laughs) One of the things that we've talked about a lot over the years, especially if you've been a part of IBCD for a while, is we point out fairly often, because I think it's a remarkable thing, that we're a church that is made up of people that come from numerous different countries, numerous different cultures different cultural values as a result, different expectations between each other or between uh, cultures as a result, values may be different sometimes. And what I've pointed out, and I find it to be kind of the miracle of God, is that we stay together as a church because we really don't have anything else in common except for the fact that Jesus Christ is our Lord and our Savior. And that, that single commonality, as long as we keep our eyes on that, We'll be okay, and, and we've done that. We've actually thrived, and we're doing okay. Even during this terrible time of corona, you know, we've kept our eyes on Christ, and we're moving forward. It's not to say there hasn't been hurt in the family of faith because of not being able to meet. Certainly there has been, but we're, we keep our eyes on Christ and believe the best in Him and in one another. But one of the things we do, most of us have in common, well, every one of us have in common, is that we all come from some kind of family somewhere. Either you, know, you came from a family, like mine was a fairly small family growing up. Uh, I didn't have any siblings until I was 15. Uh, so it was just my mom, my dad, and me uh, up until I was 15 years old. Some of you come from big families, lots of p- folks in there. Some of you come from broken families. Some of you come from single-parent families. Some of you come from... Uh, adopted families that you were adopted into, my sister and both of cindy's brother and sister are adopted, uh, but they're as much a part of the family as as the biological kids as well. But family can be strange, right? I think we can all agree. family can be difficult sometimes, and family can be you know all the different expectations that are there. You know whenever I go to a family gathering, I kind of feel like this little yellow peep in the middle of the the sea of the others, because my family, particularly, uh, isn't all that religious. You might think because I'm a pastor, I come from this really hardcore focused family on Christ. Not really. My family extends to everything from people in the federal penitentiary all the way over to people who retired uh, from military services generals. And so I have everything in between that. And uh, most of what is in between is a fairly lukewarm uh, Understanding of God or even desire to know God. And whenever I go to public gatherings, like family gatherings, when it comes down to the person who's going to pray, which isn't something that I ever really initiate, but if we're gonna kind of like Thanksgiving or, or around, all eyes turn to me. I'm the designated prayer for the family. I'm the designated merrier for the family. I'm the designated barrier for the family. And I've done it all. I've married them, I've buried them, and I've prayed at many a family occasion. The weirder ones are when I go visit my wife's family because her family is primarily Mormon and they really don't know what to make of me because according to Mormonism, I'm kind of an agent of the devil and I took Cindy away from the true faith and into the place of darkness, which is here apparently. So you ever want to know what the eternal pit of darkness looks like? From her family's point of view anyway. But family, can, you know, like family, like I say, the family can be difficult, it can be hard, they have expectations. I was reading online kind of some of the different reasons why families get into fights, and these are some real uh, tweets about uh, reasons why families get into fights. This is one that says, My aunt got mad because none of us wished her dog a happy birthday. When we called to apologize, she said that he, the dog, was too hurt to speak to us right now. <laughs> Another one said this, my dad got mad at me for opening a new pack of toothbrushes and choosing his color. Another one said, my brothers often argue with each other who is the ugly one between the both of them and their identical twins. <laughs> and then finally, this is just another one, the day the clocks turned back for daylight savings time, members of my family kept arguing about what time they should feed the cat so that the cat wouldn't become confused. Yeah, so we all have some weirdness in our families, and I imagine you do as well. Jesus had a unique relationship with his family, and we're going to talk about Jesus' view on family today because the Bible sends kind of a mixed message about family. And Jesus, being Jesus, who oftentimes would would use very kind of strong language, sends kind of a mixed message. But Jesus' family, his own brothers and sisters brothers and sisters, which are recorded in the Bible that he has both, But we know for sure his brothers at first didn't really even believe that he was anything special. And the Gospel of John points this out. It says this Jesus' brothers said to him, You ought to leave here and go to Judah, so that your disciples may see the miracles you do. Now, at first this sounds good, but you'll you'll kind of get the zinger that they're not very sincere here. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. And since you're doing these things. Show yourself to the world. And then we find out what their really motivation is. For even his own brothers did not believe him. So they were saying this somewhat sarcastically. You know, if you're going to be someone, you should go be seen. And then we find out that they didn't even believe in him. Later on, they did come to a place where they believed him. At least some of them did. We believe that the book of James and the letter of Jude in the New Testament are written by brothers of Jesus or half-brothers of Jesus. So as we're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, though, we've been going through chapter 12. And chapter 12, you remember, is a lot about Jesus' authority being challenged. And at the very end of the chapter, you kind of get this final challenge that Jesus is, is facing. And it actually comes from his family. And this is the story we hear in Matthew. It says this, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside waiting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. And he replied to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now this incident, just in and of itself, is interesting enough. But what I find really interesting is that this is mentioned also in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Luke. These are called the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John's kind of its own thing. Uh, But in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, this same incident is talked about almost verbatim. But Mark, which is the Gospel most scholars think is the oldest of the Gospels, includes kind of a, a prelude to this story. It kind of tells us what was going on behind the scenes. And if you look... In the Gospel of Mark in chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, it says this. Then Jesus entered a house, and again the crowd gathered, gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said he is out of his mind. Does that surprise you? That this was the reaction of Jesus' family? And if you read the third chapter of Mark, it's pretty much the 12th chapter of Matthew. It's the same teachings going on about authority and and the Pharisees. Except Mark throws in this little story here. And then in between verses 21 and 32, those 10 verses, there's more teaching, which you'll see also almost verbatim in the Gospel of Matthew. And then you get this story. A crowd was sitting around him. They told him, your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers, he asked. And he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my mother, my brother and sister and mother. So we see here this interesting little story that Jesus' family, his mom, heard that he wasn't eating, that he and his disciples don't have enough to eat because they're so busy more than anything else. And being a good Jewish mom, Mary's like, my baby's got to eat. And so she's going to go and she's going to go take care of him. And I think the brothers were more in the mindset of taking charge of him, because he was out of his mind. They really didn't believe him. They didn't understand what he was doing. They th- He's just running around. He's, he's getting in trouble with the Pharisees. He is out of his mind. I find that intriguing. I find it intriguing because I don't know about you, but if my mother showed up here at church, if she came walking in the back today and Chris is sitting out there, uh, said to her, you know, you need to have your registration and all that, and my mom said to Chris, well, well, Jeff's my, my son and all that. And Chris were to come up and say, your mom's out there. And, I, and if I said, who is my mother? <laughs> Behold, my mother, my brothers, my sister. My mom would be pretty angry with me. And she'd be deeply hurt that I would, in some kind of even spiritual manner, kind of dismiss her even though my mother is my sister in the sense that she's a believer and so we are brother and sister in Christ while at the same time she's mom uh, and the person that raised me but it brings up these questions you know about what it means to to have family what is how does Jesus really feel about family and how should we as believers respond to our family because i know that many of you are the only christian in your family or many of you are the only really dedicated one or Your Christianity doesn't express itself in the manner which much of your family thinks it should express itself. Going to a certain type of church, you know, following certain groups of rituals. And because of this, you are kind of seen as the odd one out. So how should we deal with family? Because Jesus in some ways doesn't make it easy. Because he says some things about family which, regardless of what culture you come from, are uncomfortable. And especially some of your cultures, because I know some of you have come from cultures where family is a big deal and respect to your elders is a big deal. And you have a lot of expectations on you from your parents or your in-laws. Jesus says some things which go very much against that. And they're very difficult for some of you to hear and understand that while Jesus is saying this, he also is within a culture That where family is very important. The oldest son and his relationship to the parents is very important. And yet within that context, Jesus says things like this. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves his father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who loves his son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those are tough words. They're hard enough for whatever church background or family background or cultural background you come from here. And for some of you, these are words of almost blasphemy. How can you speak that way about your mom, your mother, and your father? Jesus also says, And everyone who left houses and brothers and sisters or father or mother or children or fields for my sake will receive a hundred times as much and will inherit eternal life. And this is probably one of the hardest ones. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. These are tough words, aren't they? It's hard for us to get our heads around what is he exactly talking about here? And it's not as though this is the first time Jesus begins to speak like this. He actually does this even from his childhood. There's this story. It's the only story we have beside the birth stories in the book of Luke of Jesus' childhood. And some of you know this story. His, his parents and his extended family go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And then as they leave Jerusalem, they kind of leave as an extended family. And Jesus is Joseph and Mary just kind of assume that Jesus is with Uh, His other uncles or, or, or aunts or whatever because he's not with them and they don't realize that Jesus is missing until they're well outside of Jerusalem. So Joseph and Mary go back to Jerusalem. And those of you who are parents, put this in your head. Your kid is 12 years old and he's disappeared in the biggest city in your country. And you're searching for him for three days. Now I don't know about you, but if one of our children were missing... There would be no sleep during those three days because my wife wouldn't allow it. I would be willing to sleep. I'd be like, hey, man, you know, I don't have to pay for university. So there you go. I'm going to go to sleep. But she'd want to find them because she's a good mother. And you know during those days, too, there was no rest. And so they finally find Jesus in the temple, and I like how the Bible tries to make Mary kind of seem like she's holding it together. And it says this, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And I don't think this is a good astonishment. I think this is an astonishment of, I cannot believe where you are right now. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? This is, this is the Bible cleaning up. Where have you been? What do you think you're doing? You know how worried we were. Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Oh, you wait till you get home. (laughs) And then Jesus' answer, Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? If I had disappeared, from, again, from my family, and I have some pretty mellow parents, if I had disappeared for three days and my mom found me sitting in the church talking to the pastor, and then she said, where have you been? And I said, didn't you know that I would be here in, the, in our church, in the house of worship? My mom never raised her hand to beat me, but I think this would be the time she probably would. And she drove me home. So, what does it mean then? Should being a Christian mean we should treat our families like they don't exist? Because this is really what Jesus was talking about. You know, like when He says these things, like if you if you don't hate your mother, father, wife, and children, if you don't even hate your own life and take up your cross, you're not worthy of following Me. Phrases and teachings like that have been taken to heart throughout history. And if you look throughout history, a lot of the greats, the great writers, the great preachers, the great people who've made move, part of the movements of, of the kingdom of God, their family history is pretty awful. Like David Livingston, he was this, this famous missionary, went to, went to uh, that southern part of Africa there, did a lot against the slave trade going on. He intentionally put his family into what they called in England the poor house so that he could go be a missionary. And work, and his family had to work in the poorhouse because they needed to have food and there was no family to take care of them. So he just stuck them into this institution which was no pleasure palace and ran off and was a missionary. One of the greatest missionary, the modern missionary movement, uh, his, wife to, to and, uh, his wife didn't want to go. He went to India and his wife didn't want to go. But he said, I'm going, whether you go or not. So she got on the boat, and she went, and had nothing to do with India, she, but she was just emotionally unstable, and she went insane. And we celebrate these men who left their families as a wreckage, and it wasn't just because of these men were selfish. This is what the church expected from clergy at that time. You are to sacrifice your family for the sake of God. And this has happened, and it's happened up until the last... When I was in seminary, it was one of the... They had been teaching in the seminary for about 10 years. As pastors, you need to take care of your family. They had to start teaching the pastors, you need to take care of your family. Because we believed, many pastors believed, that our discipleship, our dedication to God, is measured in just focusing on Him and leaving everything else behind. And we would spiritualize it by saying, well, God will take care of them. God will take care of my children as I am an absentee father. God will take care of my wife as I make her live in a place of sacrifice to the point where she doesn't even want to admit that she's married to me. There's another famous guy. I don't want to throw out their names because some of you probably have read their writings and have been influenced by them in a positive way. But there's one lady. She didn't even want to admit she was married to the guy. Because he never cared, he was never there for her. And when she when he died and she remarried, they said, Oh, weren't you the wife of so-and-so? And And he said, No, I never was his wife. I was married to him, but I was never his wife. And the churches are culpable in it too. The churches that demanded from pastors and demanded from folks that they they give everything into the into the church. And they had no problem with the fact that their families were falling apart. You know that joke that pastor kids are like the worst kids out there? You've probably heard that. You know, the pastor kids are either the best or the worst. A lot of it has to do with, you know, this, this rejection that a lot of them have gone through. So it's important for the church to understand and for us to understand among each other, how should we deal with our families as believers? How do we take these verses which talk about hating our family in order to follow Christ and bring them into this, an understanding that that we can live with. And so, what do we make of passages like this? Well, first of all, as we've mentioned before, Jesus often teaches in hyperbole. Hyperbole is kind of an intentionally exaggerated language in order to make a point. And when Jesus says you are to hate your mother and father, he doesn't expect you to go out and actually start acting hatefully toward your mother and father. He wants to make the point that to follow him, is not something you do halfway. To follow him is something you do with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. And it is to be so focused that everything else takes second place. But he says it in this stark way because as we've mentioned before, Jesus will sometimes use negative examples just to get people's attention. And in his culture and time to say anything negative about the family would be, it would be such an A strange thing for people to hear that they couldn't help but say, well, where's this guy going? What's going to come out next? And also we have to remember that, and this is something you don't really know just from reading the Bible, but Aramaic and Hebrew, they express kinship differently than, than we do in English anyways. There isn't a word for cousin in the Old Testament in Hebrew. Now you'll read your Old Testament and you'll see the word cousin in there, but that's because someone has translated that and they've They've made that connection for you, but most of the time in the Hebrew, it describes the relationship. So-and-so, the son of so-and-so, or so-and-so, the, the, the daughter of the father's mother, or something like that. They describe it because everybody was considered their brother and their sister. And so when Jesus says this, when he says, here are my mother, here are my brothers, whoever does the will of God is my, my brother and my sister and my mother, there were actually some of his disciples who were related to Jesus. And they would actually fit that description. Here are my brothers. Like people think James and John may have been related to Jesus through Mary. And so he would be looking at these that we would call cousins and he would say, there's my brothers. They're the ones who follow the will of God. But regardless of what he means, when he talks about this this passage that we looked at in, in Matthew, he's clearly saying that the people who are in the same vision, the same purpose, are part of his family. And the vision and purpose of Christ is to bring about the kingdom of God and that becomes our mission as well when he says, therefore go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We are acting within the vision of Christ. We are acting within the, the purpose of Christ. And he's saying here, whoever acts within my vision and purpose is my brother and my sister. But let's not forget some things about Jesus before we kind of come to this place of saying, well, I'm just going to cut off and walk away from my family in the name of Jesus. Because to be honest with you, that's not a very good witness. That's the sort of thing that happens that other non-believers in the family go, you know, our cousin here or our brother here or our sister here just cut us off and disappeared. And it's not a good witness. I did that. I did that to my uh, friends in high school. I probably needed to get some distance from them because at the time, you know, I came out of high school. There's a lot of bad habits, but I know for a fact, and I didn't do it because I, I did it consciously. I just I was so happily following God like a little puppy dog running after the trail there that I just didn't think about my friends. I had new friends, had a new girlfriend, had my only girlfriend. Who am I trying to kid? And uh, and I was you know going after you know what life was presenting. I later found out my friends felt very cut off. They're like, dude, you just walked away. You, you didn't come. You talked to us once, and it was you were trying to convert us, which is true. I came, I gave them the whole Turner Burn sermon. It's like everything a young Christian's not supposed to do, I did. And I went and told them, I love you guys, but you're all going to hell. <laughs> not the greatest witness, didn't want to be a part of their lives. Just wanted to make sure they knew they were going to hell. And you know, this is kind of one of the things that cults do. Cults isolate people from their families. And they'll often use the words of Jesus to do it. They'll say, you need to come, you need to be part of our little group here. And they isolate them from their families so they can control that person. Again, I had a, a person I knew in, in university who went on a, uh, this like, university campus group of Christians. Went to, this, went to a, a thing in Seattle it was just—it was like a mission trip, and they all came back except one who joined a cult while they were on this mission trip, and uh, and actually he was on TV. His dad was on TV trying to talk about this cult that had sucked him in. It was so bizarre for Cindy and I to say we actually know a person who, for thirty years now, has been involved in a cult that has isolated him from his family. And I think as we look at the overall way Jesus lived, we'll realize that He's not saying that we should act as if our families don't exist. Because one of the things that he did upon the cross, one of the last things he did upon the cross, was quite touching. And it comes out of the Gospel of John. It says this. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother. So Mary was there at the crucifixion. His mother's sister, Mary the wife of Cleopas, they think that this is the Mary that maybe, uh, some of her kids are Jesus' disciples, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, which is how John refers to himself, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. I think upon the cross of Christ, I think in any time, people are like facing death or they're in this place of crisis you kind of see who they really are come to the surface and who Jesus really was when he wasn't out there with the rhetoric of hyperbole was the god of love and he looked at his mother Mary who had the agony of watching a child die I can I can't I can't imagine that you know one of my prayers in this time for both Boris and and his wife, Katrin, is, you know, they're, they're suffering in a unique way because their daughter has this relapse of leukemia. And I cannot even begin to even want to approach that pain. And Nina is, is approaching it so far with courage and with faith, uh, so much so that even Boris is impressed in, by this. But it doesn't make it any easier for the parent. So she's there, she's watching this, And Jesus, who spoke to the thieves, said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Also said this, Dear woman, here's your son. He wanted to make sure Mary was cared for. Because Joseph was probably dead by this point. And he tells the disciple, Here's your mother. This isn't the words of someone that doesn't care about his family. These aren't the words of someone that's just like, Ah, whatever. These aren't even the words of someone that says, I know I'm three days. I'm back rising from the grave, so everything's going to be fine. this is someone who cares about his mother and wants to see to it that she's taken care of. And just to know that later on in the Gospel of Matthew, which we'll look at in some weeks, he talks to the Pharisees who keep trying to find a way to get out of helping their parents by trying to spiritualize their giving. It's called the corvi. And they're giving it to the church instead of caring for their parents. And Jesus says, you know, this is to the temple, I should say. And Jesus says, you know, you need to take care of your parents. You can't just do something in the name of religion and think that that relieves you of obligation, which is something we need to remember or or translate into our own situation. That just because we're believers and we hear some of these scriptures, that we're not to have anything to do with our family. And in fact, Timothy says, uh, the letter from Paul to Timothy, which the letters to Timothy are some of the most intimate personal letters he says this to Timothy: If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for his immediate family, he is denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. So how do we take this all together? Then, how do we take together, you know, the hyper- hyperbolic teachings of Jesus, which kind of seem like he's against family, and then you have these incidences where he's very tender toward his family, and then you have a scripture like this that says, you know, if you don't take care of your family, you've denied the faith, and your faith, and you're worse than an unbeliever. How do we put that together? Especially in a church like IBCD where we come from different backgrounds, different cultures, but also IBCD, we have a lot of children. And how are we to, to, to deal with our children as parents? Am I ever supposed to hate my kids so I can follow Jesus? Is that what he wants? Really? Not from what you see in the scriptures. So let's go through some practical things here. This is, we're going to finish this today just by going through three practical points here. One is this. As a Christian parent, which I am and I have, I'm fortunate. Both my parents are believers. So I have kids and I'm the child of believers. If you can bless the calling of God in your children's life and you can allow them to follow the calling of God without them being made to feel guilty, then you will be a blessing to your kids. And here I'm talking to parents. You know, I love my kids. I'd love to be near them when they have grandkids. But right now, I have a son in the U.S., a daughter in Germany. No matter where I end up, cause it looks like my daughter will probably stay in Germany. It looks like my son is going to stay in the U.S. No matter where Sydney and I live, we're going to be far away from one of our kids. And we're going to be far away from those grandkids. And we would love to be near them. Not too near that we take care of them all that much, but near enough that we can spoil them then send them home and, and not have to deal with it for another month or so. But uh, that's me speaking. She'd do it every day, probably. But, you know, to be that, that blessing to them, to give them that freedom, to go where God leads them, that's something my parents have done for me. It's been hard, my parents living in an older uh, old folks' home. I'm the oldest son. I'm their only biological son. And I'm across the ocean. And I've been across the ocean now for almost 10 years. And while we can talk with each other more on using technology than we've done in the past, my parents have let me go into the hands of God. It doesn't mean that they they like it all the time, but they've let it go, and it's been a blessing. I've never had to serve without any guilt coming from them. I feel guilty at times because my parents are old, and I'm far away. And some of you from different cultures, you're like, what are you doing here? You should be there. But this is the calling to serve God, and my parents have accepted it. And we've done the same for our kids. If our kids are called, Cindy and I have said, we'd rather our kids have a healthy relationship with God than to be beholden to us or close to us out of guilt. They need to have a healthy relationship with God. And if that healthy relationship with God leads them far away from us, then so be it. They're in the hands of God. Now, as a Christian child, which I also am and which I have, we do need to do the best we can to be there for our families, and you know, we should make some kind of effort. And we have the opportunities now through online stuff to talk to our parents and be supportive of our parents. You know, in the old days they didn't have that. I lived in Ghana when I was a child, and you didn't have, we didn't have a telephone, let alone online communication. This is back in the 70s. You know, you had to write letters, and sometimes even further back, like in the late 1800s, early 1900s, when people left to be missionaries. They were probably, they're oftentimes never heard of again until they showed up back at their family place 20 years later and get all the news of who's been born and who's died. But it's not that way anymore. And we should make an effort. And I need to, I need to tell myself that too. I, I talk to my parents once a week. I talk to my dad, which is interesting because I grew up with my dad telling me I talk too much. He even made up a song about it. He said, you want to hear the song? He goes, you talk too much... You worry me to death because you talk too much. Sing along, Jeff. You talk too much. You worry me to death. (laughs) Now he wants to talk all the time. And I've had, you know, I have to kind of get through some of that and then take the time for my dad. And finally, there's the saying which says, You can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. This is both a blessing and a curse, isn't it? (laughs) because there are times you just want to go see ya but I think if we think about the family of faith and you kind of bring this one into the family of faith I think the the point of this saying is that you know used to be in the old days no matter what went on within the family they were still your family and you couldn't just walk away from them because they were your family but nowadays where divorce happens all the time, families are broken all the time, this really doesn't mean very much. And I think it's unfortunate this is also coming to the church. You know, the church family, the, the whole reason why you often hear this term family around the church and why Christ it, here my mother, this is my brother, this is my sister, is because it, there were supposed to be ties that bind there that could not be broken. We might fight. We might not be happy with one another, but there were ties through Jesus Christ that would bind the family together. Well, that's not the case now. You get angry with your pastor or you get upset with the church, you just leave, you just go to another church. There's no real consequence to to breaking up the family anymore. And I think as a church, we should think about that. What does it mean to us to be part of this church family? Obviously, IBCD is a little bit transitory. It's a lot transitory. People come, people go. But while you're here, what does it mean? Does it mean anything to you? We've had this discussion, the Gibi and I, as the elders, we've had this discussion, like, what does membership really mean? Does it really have any deep meaning? Or is it just this idea, I belong, but there's no real accountability or obligation to the church family? And we're the same, just to to be perfectly clear. Someone walks in this door, And if the first thing that they say is, you know, yeah, I've left this church because I want to find and They'll usually say something kind of nice. We want to find a true Bible teaching church. Well, then the pride in me goes, well, here you go. And I don't really care at that point what your background is or why you're here. Now, the reason you could be here is, well, yeah, I burned down my last church. And now I'm here to go here because this is a Bible teaching church. You know, we don't really do any kind of background and we need to probably think about that as well. But, you know, this, this ease in which we dispose of our families has translated to the ease in which we dispose of the church. And we dispose of one another. We just say, I'm done. You're inconvenient. I'm out the door. And that's not what the church is supposed to be. And that is really the point that Jesus makes when he says, who is my mother, my brother, my sisters? Those who follow the will of my Father. And if you if we are in the place of following the will of the father then we need to regard those ties a little bit with a little bit more respect than I think we generally do. And I include myself in this. So, love your family. Love your church family. Love your biological family. Love your adopted family. And invest in them. Invest the time. Invest the prayers. Invest the caring. Do what you can without compromising your faith. Be a witness where you are placed in your families. Be it this church family. Be it your biological family. Be it an adopted in family. Because many of us are expats and we've been kind of adopted into each other as families. But invest. Take the time. And you know what? If people think you're out of your mind for following Jesus... If you have people around you that think you're crazy for the the commitment that you have you're in good company. Jesus' own family thought he was out of his mind. But when he rose again James and Jude anyways understood who their brother was and they stuck to their Savior brother for the rest of their lives. And may we do the same. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this place of family within your word, both Old Testament and New Testament. And we have in both Old Testament and New Testament stories of conflicted families, dysfunctional families. You just think of Jacob and Esau and just kind of the craziness there, or, or the the brothers of the sons of Jacob, and they sold their own youngest brother into slavery. And yet within all this dysfunction of family, we see throughout the scripture there is this sense of unity and ties and the ways that you can often use dysfunction to bring about your glory. Again, Joseph being sold into slavery is probably one of the best examples of you using dysfunction to bring about your glory. And Father, there are some here today that are going through some difficult things with family, be it with their spouses, be it with their parents or kids or extended aunts, uncles, cousins. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to be a positive witness, that in spite of even times of being hurt or uh, being wronged, that we can be a positive witness of love and forgiveness and trust. And Lord, there are times when we're the ones that have done the hurting, and we are the ones that are in the wrong. And we're not, we're not willing to say sorry because our pride has gotten a hold of us. And Lord, we pray that you would help extinguish that pride which is causing a, a gulf between those whom you tell us if we don't care for, we're worse than an unbeliever. And Father, we pray, I pray for the parents as being one of them here. I pray that you would help us to love our kids, to grow them in you but to do so with open hands, knowing that you have a destiny for them and they need that right and that ability to follow you without being burdened by guilt. And Lord, that we could trust our kids into your hands. And Father, for us who who are on that path, far from home, wherever it is we come from, whatever continent it is we come from, we're here today, we're in Germany, and we might feel that place of distance. And Lord, may we do the best we can to to be there for our family, even though the, the kilometers between us are many and long. And in all of this, we do pray that you would help us to keep our priorities on you. Because we have so many competing things. We have the world competing with us. We have our own sense of family competing with us. We have our own sense of our obligations or our purpose. And then we also have ourselves competing against us. Our own sin gets in our own way. Lord, help us to to walk with you in such a way that uh, glorifies you and is a positive witness to the world around us. We thank you for your love. We thank you how you were willing to send your only begotten son, that you were willing to come into this world and empty yourself of your glory. is something we can't even get our heads around. What it means to you to come from the place of glory to here. And not even here with our conveniences of the 21st century, but way back when. And suffer for our sake. So that we can have that assurance, that security. That we are children of eternity. No matter what goes on in our lives. And we pray that we can keep that perspective as we journey through the challenges of life, that we are children of eternity because of you. And we pray for the brothers and sisters, literal ones that we know that may not be following you, as many people here are the only believer in their family, that we could be witnesses so they could come and be part of the family that is deeper than just biology, but the family of faith as well. And protect the churches, Lord from the enemy that wants to seek to divide and devour. May you reign as Lord of Lord and King of kings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.